everybody has their, everybody has their own giftedness. Everybody has their, their own thing. So that's where we started. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And I was thinking about, about this passage, which for, for a lot of you will probably be familiar once we, once we get into it. But I was thinking about it, how it's such a beautiful passage, and it's so, um, it, it, people know it, but really it becomes in our culture one of the most radical uh, statements that, that you will read. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But it was occurring to me after I left over there and I was driving over here again. I'm like, you know what? In our culture, Galatians 5, and 23 is really radical. And I'll read that to you now. Galatians 5, says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. So, that's, that's where we're going to camp all, all morning. Let me just begin by, by, by saying this. So, if you grew up in, in church, and I, I grew up in, uh, in church, if you have a church background, uh, churches tend to have some sort of definition of what it means to be either a Christ follower or at least a member of, of that church. And so we start to identify kind of the teachings of our church with, well, that's what it must mean to be, to be a Christian. And so I will be honest with you, I grew up in, in a church that was, uh, that was probably what might be called low-key legalist, okay? Legalism is just this, uh, this thing where they have uh, lots of rules about what it means to be, um, it means to be a, a, a Christian. And so I will... I will elucidate or, or elucidate some of those uh, uh, some of those now. So I grew up in, in a church where um, we weren't allowed to go to movies. Okay, and the reason we weren't allowed to go to movies is sort of confusing. But as near as we can tell, well, I think first originally we weren't allowed to go to movies because they were worldly entertainment. But then the VCR was developed so you could get worldly entertainment at, at home. So it threw the threw the thing into the into the threw the whole thing into a. Uh, into a tailspin, you're like, oh, now you can get worldly entertainment at home, and it was okay to get worldly entertainment at home, but you couldn't go to get the worldly entertainment at the, at the theater. I was thinking about this because I think that this might have become a rule sometime during my youth. I think that while I was younger, like real young, it might have been okay to go to movies, but then as I got older, it didn't get okay to go to movies, and I, I didn't have time to ask uh, my dad how, how this works. I just remember when I was little, we used to go to the drive-in, and maybe the drive-in is less sinful because you're in your car because the big reason why we discovered after the worldly entertainment thing is is that it was it was bad to go to movies because someone could see you at the movies and they wouldn't know what movie you were going to and how would they know maybe they would know that you wouldn't know that you were going to an okay movie they might think that you were going to a bad movie and that would ruin your witness so maybe that's the whole thing about the drive-through that's only playing one movie everyone can see what you're at I don't know I just know that when I was real little we went to the drive-through and then for a long time it became sinful to go go to to movies uh, most of my, my growing up. Thankfully, I will note this. It should be noted. My parents, uh, though, uh, though usually consistent with the rules of, 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 of the church, did not raise us in a very legalistic way, so I don't feel damaged uh, by this. Um, I do remember when I was young, uh, the movie uh, The American Tale came out. That's the one with Fievel. Uh, the first one, not the one where he goes west, but the original. And uh, 
I was young, and I really, really wanted to go see that movie, and my dad uh, offered my sisters money to go see that movie, but they wouldn't take me because it was sinful uh, to go to movies. So my dad had to take me to see Great American Tale, all of which to say is we had this rule against seeing movies in our, in our church, and we had rules against other things. So my parents, again, thankfully, not as strict as the other parents. Uh, uh, we had other parents. The, there was this thing during this time where any music with a beat was wrong. We had this thing called Christian Rock. Uh, uh, and it was wrong to listen to it because it had a beat. My parents, thankfully, were not like that. I was allowed to listen to most things. I do remember, though, leading into uh, another one, is that I was not allowed to listen to the band Whiteheart. The reason I was not allowed to listen to the band Whiteheart was this, is that my parents had heard from one of the youth leaders that Whiteheart danced at their concerts. And so I was not allowed to listen to Whiteheart specifically because of the rumor uh, probably founded, that, that Whiteheart danced at their concerts. And so in the church I grew up in, we didn't go to movies. Uh, we didn't listen to, uh, uh, they didn't, uh, listen to movies with, with the beat. And we didn't listen to Whiteheart because they might be out there, out there dancing, right? So we didn't do those things. And we had all these other sorts of things. There's just sort of these, these rules. And the point of this is, is that most of these rules have gone by the wayside because, frankly, they're not in the Bible. We had other big ones. For instance, um, uh, the other ones that I think are, 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 are better life rules, but in the same vein, not necessarily in, in the Bible. And um, this is where we might get slightly offensive to some of you, but we'll, we'll bring it home. Don't worry. Uh, is this, is that you weren't, uh, that it was a, a sin to smoke, which I think an argument because health can, can be made, and uh, it was definitely a sin to, to drink. And I don't even want to go deeply into that except for to say this, is that I carried these ideas into my 30s, well in, into, into my, my 30s, and, and what had happened was not only did I carry those, those ideas, and I'm, by the way, supportive of both of those as a, as a general life rule, but I carried these ideas into my, my 30s so that it became to the point that I thought of that if you go, well, if you meet a person who doesn't smoke and doesn't drink, you know that they're probably a Christian. You can go, oh, that person's probably a Christian because they don't drink and they don't smoke. The corollary to that in my, my backwards mind was this, is that if you meet a person who does drink and does smoke or, 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 uh, or does do those things, well, how would you even know if they were a Christian? How would you know what a Christian was? Or we'll just we'll take out, out smoking because, uh, and just go with drinking. If a person, if a person could, is out there just uh, just willy-nilly uh, drinking alcohol responsibly, how would we even know if they're a Christian? These are the kinds of ideas that went through my head. So I had taken into my 30s this idea that if you looked at a person and go, well, they drink, they're probably not a Christian, or they don't drink, well, they probably are a Christian. Somehow my background had put those into me so that I get into my, into my 30s and all of a sudden I realize, wait, that's a really bad way to define who a Christian is, right? That's an awful way. And the reason it's an awful way to define who a Christian is, is one, is that by that definition, Jesus would not be a Christian. And secondly, that, that it's not in Scripture, right? So let me replay what I just said for you. Obviously, Jesus drank wine. There's, there's stories about that. So by any definition of Christianity that it includes Christ is problematic, first off. Second off, this, this idea that how do we know what a Christian is if, if it was, and this should not have been as big of a crisis for me as it was, but at that time I went, 
Because I meant this, dude, so I grew up Baptist. You grow up Baptist, uh, you, you know that we grew up, uh, we grew up not drinking uh, uh, and, and such. And then I met a dude who was Presbyterian, but he followed Jesus, and he grew up uh, the opposite. So the, the son of the Baptist came neither drinking nor, but the son of the Presbyterian came definitely drinking. And it was interesting because this Presbyterian loved Jesus, and it was completely confusing to me. And it brought him like, how do I know what a Christian is if they're going to be out there doing those things? If they're out there drinking, how do we even define it? And so I think if you take that back enough years, there was probably someone with a crisis or someone who was a better rule follower than me going, how do we even know what a Christian is. I saw them at a movie. How do we know? How are we? It was, it was like shaking my world. How are we going to define what a Christian is? How will we know? I know the rule's not in the Bible, but maybe we should keep it just so we could have an arbitrary de- definition of what a Christian is. And then it hit me that the Bible doesn't give us that as a definition or a description of what a Christian is or how a Christian behaves or how a Christian lives. But it indeed does give us another description where those aren't mentioned, right? And so somewhere along the way, I've been trying to, and I think this is a problem for everybody. By the way, even if you don't view yourself as a legalistic rules-based person, you are. You just don't recognize the rules you've made. And I think what all of us do is we make up arbitrary descriptions, usually based upon the stuff that's easy for us to do, right? Because for me, I'm like, well, if, you, if, if not drinking is the... Is the, is the, the the, 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 the definition of what it means to be a believer. I'm Christianing so much better than everybody else, right? And you might not think you do that, but you probably have a rule, usually something you're good at. You go, that's what a Christian is. But it occurs to me that those aren't in Scripture. This is, though. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it got me thinking that there's time in our history, the argument, by the way, going back to the, back to the movies, I was like, what if someone sees you going into that movie, was, was the big question. And what the question should have been is, or what the question needs to be is, what if someone sees you being unloving? See, one's in the Bible, one's not. What if someone sees you being unjoyful? One's in the Bible. Right? So that's where I want to... I want to go this morning to say to you this, is that it occurred to me sometime in my 30s that, that I had a list of arbitrary stuff that in my head, like, like not that I vocalized, but I had convinced myself, this is what the Christians are. This is, this is how you know. And they usually are things that I did simply and easy. But that's not how Scripture defines it. So what we are going to get to this morning is this, is that, that we are given a, a description of what a, how a Christian behaves or how a Christian would sort of look externally, the actions that you would notice in a Christian. So we'll go to verse 22, and I want to point out this first sentence, but the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to point that out to you first, because what we don't want to do is replace old legalisms. Don't go to the movies. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't listen to a music with a beat. Don't have long hair. Don't pierce your ears, right? Uh, those are all stuff from my, my generation. I don't want to play, replace my generational legalisms with a new legalism, even, even if the stuff that I'm listing as a legalism is good stuff. So 
What I'm saying is, is that what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to hear me say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't want you to hear that and go home and grit your teeth, work harder, and make that your new legalism. And you're just going to work day and night at being those things. You're going to be the most loving, joyful, patient, peaceful, kindest person who ever lived, even if it kills you and others, right? I don't want you to take that home. So I don't want you to replace legalisms. What I want you to hear is this first line. But the fruit of the Spirit is. See, the fruit is that which grows from the plant, right? So the fruit of the apple tree is the apple. The fruit of the orange tree is the orange. The fruit of the grapevine is the grape. The fruit of the banana tree is the banana. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But the tree is the Spirit, or the vine is the spirit. In other words, what, is, what, we, are, what we are hearing here is, is that the fruit that's being grown is the spirit's fruit. And I point that out to you because what I don't want you to do is go, well, I've got to be loving, I'm going to do it, and you're going to grit your teeth, and you're going to grind, and you're going to, I'm going to go, and, and, and disconnect it from everything. You're going to be loving. And even if you could force yourself to be loving, if you go about it in that way, that would not be a fruit of the Spirit. That would be a fruit of you because you would have produced that. I don't think that you can do that. I don't think that you can make yourself loving. But you might be able to fake some of these by working hard enough at faking some of these. And so as you fake those things, as you grit your teeth and you grind, your work, as you fake those things, what you will have produced is a new legalism and a fruit that's not born of the Spirit. So I point out to you here that the fruit is the Spirit's fruit. So it's a gardening analogy. Think of it this way. If you were to take a seed Pick any sort of seed. Let's say you're going to grow an avocado plant. I've seen on the internet lots of, lots of directions on how to grow an avocado. You might take the avocado and you might prepare the pit of the avocado. You might take the, uh, do all the steps because there's a, there's a video about it. Do all of those steps and you might plant it. But what eventually grows is going to be an avocado. And what eventually grows is going to come from the avocado pit. And what eventually grows will be an avocado tree. What it will be will be wrapped up in its DNA and what it is. And you did not make that grow. You might have followed some steps. You might have done some, some cultivation. But you didn't make that grow. DNA made that grow. It grew up to be an avocado because by design it was an avocado. In the same way, the fruit of the Spirit that grows in, in your life, we'll talk in a minute about cultivation, but what grows must be of the Spirit. The Spirit must grow it. You, I can plant a seed. I cannot make a seed grow, right? I can plant a seed. The seed will be in the ground. The only thing that's going to make that seed grow is the design which it's been given, the way in the, which its genetics and its DNA are laid out, and eventually it's going to grow. And what grows as to the fact of what kind of fruit it is and what the fruit it bears, I can take no credit for. It was made that way. It is what it is. In the same way with, with the Spirit, what grows in you must be of the, of the Spirit. You cannot make love grow in you, no matter how hard you grit your teeth. You definitely cannot make joy grow in you, because here's the thing. With joy, if, you're, if you think that, that joy is what is demanded of you, demand and joy don't go well together. Ugh, i got to be joyful. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'll be, I'm going to do it. Good luck. You're never going to be joyful that way. Doesn't work. 
So then, what do we need? We need the Spirit of the living God to grow it in us. We need Him to produce the fruit in us. Who are we? We are simply the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows. We are the dirt in the story, not the plant. Right? And what we need to do, there is ways in which we cultivate and prepare the ground for the Spirit to grow, but we do not produce the fruit in us. The Spirit of the living God produces His his fruit. And so my challenge to you is not to replace this with the legalism and go, I'm going to work harder at that. I'm going to do it. This is the year that I'm going to be more loving, more joyful. Doesn't work. My challenge to you is to recognize that it is the spirit of the living God who produces the, the fruit in you and to cultivate the soil of your life for the spirit to do that. How do you do that? It's simple. You do that by becoming closer to Jesus Christ and the spirit which he has given you. Inasmuch as you move closer to Jesus, inasmuch as the spirit is working in you, the soil of your life becomes cultivated. The soil of your life becomes watered. The soil of your life becomes fertilized in relationship with Jesus. The closer you move, move to Jesus, the more he begins to produce that fruit in you through his Holy Spirit. You are the, the soil. And it is not, uh, it, 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 is, it, is, uh, it is good to cultivate that soil through things like prayer, through things like Bible reading, through things like spending time meditating on who God is and what he has done. We cultivate that, that soil through things like simply when God says to do something, being obedient to it, doing what the word says. This is all cultivation of, of the soil. As you cultivate that soil, though, it's like fertilizer. The spirit makes these things grow in you. You cannot do it by gritting of your teeth. Because if you do that, simply would be a new legalism. And what you would be doing is going, I am so spiritual. I'm so holy. Did you see me? Look at me. I'm the most holy person ever. I'm so loving. I'm so joyful. Most peaceful person ever. Patient with everybody. Look at me. Right? That's what would happen if you tried to do it and thought you could grow this fruit on your own, but you can't. The spirit grows it. You simply cultivate the soil. You, 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 you have openness to being planted with the, with the Spirit. So then, what does it look like when the Spirit of the living God is growing fruit in you? The first of the fruit is love. Love is first because it undergirds everything. And this is the one I think that it, 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 everything sort of builds, builds from it. But love is why I said it's radical in our generation. I don't think we live in a particularly radical generation as far as demonstrating love to each other. I don't think that love is naturally, by the way, easy for us to give, especially true love that's not self-serving, but it, it cares about the other person. So I was thinking about like, what if the church of Jesus Christ and his followers were truly known for being loving? What if that's what we were, were known for? And we'll come back to that in a minute. But love is interesting. I think we should be defined by love. And we should be defined by love radically. One of the things I say to, to my kids, and one of the things we're, we're trying to work on, especially in a confusing generation, especially in a generation that, that, that spends a good majority of its time arguing on the internet with other people on, on the internet. Like, we live in the internet arguing generation. No, you. And I was, I was teasing the other congregation this morning. I'm like, you know what I never hear about is someone coming to me and go, you know what? 
I accepted Jesus. I said, really? What happened? Well, I got in a really deep argument on Facebook, and uh, they called me a jerk a couple of times, and I was like, they're right, I am a jerk, right? I don't hear that much, right? But we live in a generation that's social media. Let's argue that we also live in, in a generation that makes it confusing sometimes for Christians in knowing how we love, because we live in a generation that is taken taken certain brokennesses, okay, certain kinds of brokenness, has taken certain kinds of brokenness, and we have, that our generation calls that brokenness whole, right? And so specifically, as to broken sexualities and broken identities, right, we, our generation has called those whole. And so sometimes my kids will ask, what are we going to do about that? What do we do? And it's confusing because we are followers of the Bible. We are followers of the word of God. We believe in the teaching of what wholeness is. We believe in the teaching that scripture gives about what brokenness is. And they go, well, what about a person who says they're this? Do we, how, do, what, how do we respond to that? And one of the things I say to my kids routinely is this. I say, we are Christians. We love people, period. We love people. And sometimes in our, I think that we feel that we, need to, that we need to stop and we need to qualify the ways in which we love. I don't think we need to do that. There's a reason that, 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 that Jesus in Scripture is called the Lion of Judah. He's a lion. You don't need to defend, defend a lion. He'll be okay. And so sometimes I think we think anytime we're like, well, I'm going to love you, but let me make clear this, 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 this. So one of the things I say to my kids, especially being public school kids, being in, in, in a school, uh, being in a generation where there is massive change, massive identity confusion, frankly, our generation has continued to call things that are dangerous and hurtful. We have, we, we have called them good and okay. And so I do think that that's a problem. So my kids go, well, what do we do if my person says, my friend says they identify as this? Or if my friend says this is their sexuality or that's their sexuality, I always answer with this. We are Christians. We love people, period. And I know that we want to qualify and we want to say, but, but, don't need to. There comes a time and there comes a place. But I, I always tell this story. So one of the kids in my youth group came to me and he said, Here's, he wasn't in my youth group, he's an adult. He is an adult and he was living in, in Keizu and he came and said, I've got this problem, I don't know what to do. I'm trying to live for Jesus, I'm trying to do this. But two of my roommates, my roommates are, are gay and I don't know how to confront them, what I should say to them, what I should do. And he was comfortable living there, but he just wanted to know. And I said to him, I said, Matt, I want you to think like this. Let's assume for a minute that your roommates, that your roommates stopped being gay tomorrow. Would that be okay? And it dawned on him. He's like, no, no, why not? They still don't know Jesus. They still don't know Jesus. And one of the things I think we do as relates to love and as followers of Jesus is we start with the rules of how we as followers of Jesus should behave before we communicate the love of Jesus to a person. So what I'm saying is oftentimes we want people who are like, you need to come to Jesus, but we start with their behavior. You change this and you change that and don't do this and you can't do that. As if God has not always been in the business of rescuing and saving and loving people with broken sexualities right? As if the broken sexuality in our generation, the broken sexuality in your neighbor's life is any deeper than the broken sexuality that lies in the heart of who you are. Because frankly, the reality is, is that 
All of us as sinners are born with broken identities. We're born with broken sexualities. We're broken with all kinds of sinful stuff about us. So what the di- what's the difference? The difference is we have encountered the love of Jesus Christ and the spirit of the living God is in the business of transforming those whom he has rescued. That's what the word says. Those whom he has called, he, he is also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. He's conforming us to the image. of. So my, my point simply is this. As we relate to the world, Maybe the starting place for us is love. And that's why I continually say to my children, we love people, period. Why? Because the assumption that the people next door and the people who don't know Jesus are any more sinful than we were when we didn't know Jesus is wrong. We're all broken. We're all, we're all wrecked. We're all destroyed. And the only fix for that is the spirit of the living God coming into our lives, transforming us, regenerating us, and making us sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, adopted into the family of the Father. And it's love that does this. That's why it says elsewhere in Scripture, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Listen, you know me. Don't hear me say I'm soft on sin, but man. How radical would it be if the church of Jesus Christ was known for loving people, period? They love people. I don't think that's currently how we're known. In fact, I've seen the surveys. I know that if you survey most of America that, and you put love and kindness on that survey, they're not going to show up. You get things like hateful. You get things like angry. You get things like judgmental. You do not get loving. Leads to the next one. What if we were known for love? What if we were known for joy? Joy and love go together. Have you ever met a person who doesn't love anybody that's joyful? That does not happen, right? Well, I hate everybody, but man, am I joyful today. Doesn't happen. They build, right? Joy should be one of the defining factors of the believer. I think this is one of the things that we sort of, we sort of miss out on. But if you're following Jesus, you should be known for and defined by your joy. Some people live an Eeyore life. Right? If you don't get that, that's a Winnie the Pooh reference. Eeyore is the donkey in Winnie the Pooh. The donkey's life is always bad. No matter what's going on, it's always terrible. The donkey could win the lottery. The donkey could be given an island. The donkey could be basking in the, in the sun on his private island. And the donkey would be complaining about the heat. The donkey would be complaining about the sun. He'd be complaining about the travel. He'd be complaining about the struggle to manage his money. The donkey just doesn't know joy. He's a funny character, but the problem is sometimes he's hard to laugh at because he goes to our churches, and it's just not funny when Eeyore attends the church. It's not. We are not meant to be Eeyore. We are meant to be joyful. We don't need, oh my, no, joy, love, joy. Well, I don't know what I have. Well, Jesus saved you, and you were headed to hell. Start there. That's, that's step one, right? Jesus rescued you. You were broken. He made you whole. Let's start there. That should produce some joy in you. He loves you just the way you are. That should produce some joy. You have a church full and family full of people who also love you just the way you are. That should produce some joy. Joy, it is the mark of a believer. You have Jesus. Why would anybody want a Jesus if Eeyore's... Can you imagine Eeyore as a missionary? Oh, my... Guess you should, right? Nobody wants Eeyore for the missionary. Eeyore's not a good billboard. And I'm not telling you that you should have the fruits of the Spirit in your life simply as, as a missional technique. That's not my point. My point is simply this, is that if the fruit of the Spirit is in your life, mission happens naturally. People are going to see it. Joy is contagious. Love, joy, peace. Love, joy, and peace. 
are, are the opposite of our generation that lives all of its time on its phone on Facebook, right? That is the opposite. We don't have much love. We don't have much joy. We don't have much peace. We are in constant fights. We are in constant meme wars. I was say, saying, you know, it's, it, it's, it, we get in our idea, even uh, uh, as Christ followers are like, oh, someone said that on Facebook. One of the problems, I think in our generation, it's hard to be loving, joyful, and peaceful with other people is because we know more about them in this generation, right? Like in past generations, you didn't, you didn't have like an inside picture of everything that everybody you know thinks. Now people are posting everything and you think, and you're like, damn, I don't know. This makes you harder to love. I can't believe you said that. What do you? So it's hard in our generation. I just, so sometimes, especially you have a person like mine, competitive, likes to discuss things. You're gonna make it's very hard, and I try not to respond anymore. But I think there's a meme that sums up like my emotional tumult perfectly. It's a husband working furiously at a computer, and his wife says, "Honey, are you coming to bed?" He says, "I can't. Somebody's wrong on the internet." I think that defines our generation, right? It is difficult in our generation uh, to be loving, joyful, and peaceful if you spend too much time online. That's why it's good to start to disconnect from, from some of those things. It's good to go, this is the thing. Most people are not going to be convinced by your argument anyways. This is going to be shocking, but if you don't post a reply to that, that argument, probably nothing will change, <laughs> right? Like, like, I'm talking to me too, because you know I like to post some replies. I don't much anymore, but oh man, back in the day, I was a reply king, right? I'd go at you. Here's the thing. We're not changing the world. It doesn't say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and really well-worded Facebook slams. That's not there. It's not there. It's hard, but we are to be at peace with others. I think just saying that love, joy, and peace, if the church of Jesus Christ is known for love, joy, and peace, the church of Jesus Christ will be growing in America in significantly greater numbers than it is. Patience. So here's something I never do. I never mention like, like original languages, but I'm going to mention the original language here just because it's funny to me, right? So the word for patience in the original language, in this case Greek, the word is long-nostrilled. And the reason patience is long-nostrilled is this, is that have you ever met a person who's impatient and angry and sighing all the time and just has like that curmudgeon, angry thing? They always have, they're like, ah, right? They're, ah. I can't do it through my nostrils. I tried at the, the first service. I learned I, I couldn't do it. So I'm doing it through, but like, they're like, ah. they're always sighing. And the idea here is they're long-nostrilled. Like they don't, like, like a patient person doesn't sigh all the time, doesn't get upset with others, isn't like, oh, what an idiot, uh, Right? They're long-nostrilled. It means patient. They're not always sighing, angry, blowing their head, being, oh, wow, did they do that? Patience is part of the, I struggle with patience probably more than any of these. I just like stuff done fast, right? Like when we get into the car, I want to get into the car and leave. When I get into the car, everyone gets into the car. Libby comes to the car and she starts to clean stuff, which immediately she's a better person than I am. You can tell by this story, this story right? But she starts up, I'm like, we're trying to go. Do that later. Well, and then she says, well, you shouldn't have left it there, which I'm like, you know what? I don't think blaming others is helpful here. Right? But I just, I like to go. I'm a goer. When I worked for Youth for Christ, when I worked for Youth for Christ, we used to take groups to, to, uh, to Washington, D.C. Oh, goodness. It's like my ear changed shape in 10 seconds. 
Okay, there we go. When, when, we, when I worked for Youth of Christ, we used to bring teens to, to Washington, D.C. And some of the groups would get out of the bus and they'd stand on the corner for like 30 minutes just discussing where they were going to go and what they were going to do. That drives me insane, right? So my group, I'd say my group, I'm like, here's what we're going to do. When we hit the cement, we sprint. We're just going. We're going to go. And we'll discuss what we're going to do on the way and we'll get there, but I'm not standing on the corner. I'm so impatient that I can't go to Pizza Hut in groups. Okay, because the group think about what you want on that pizza is too stressful to me. I'm like, I don't want group think. Like, I'll show up and I'll pick off all the terrible stuff you put on it, but I cannot go to pizza with you because I have a I have a patience problem. And the Lord's like working with me in it. But the idea here is not even so much. It's patience as it relates to how you love others. So if you're impatient with your wife who's, who's, who's trying to clean the car, you should not be. That's wrong. She's trying to clean the car. If you're impatient with, with, with your children, right? Um, here's, a, here's a parenting tidbit. Uh, this is free. You might want to write this down, but kids are annoying. And um, I've known that known for a few years. Uh, kids are kind of annoying, and so it's sometimes hard to be patient with kids because they do annoying stuff. And you're like, why'd you do that annoying thing? And they're like, because of this. And you're like, no, why? Like, how'd that come into your head? Because kids do bothersome stuff, and they're routinely doing bothersome stuff. And you're like, why are you doing bothersome stuff? And I think patience, though, is this, is that you endure with the person who does annoying stuff because it's not just kids who do annoying stuff. I've always thought if, if, if a kid is annoying to me, a sinful human, how annoying must I be to the living God who is, who is perfect? But he's patient with me. He has patience toward me. And when we display patience towards one another, and, and it happens in relationships. In other words, see, churches, like, I'll give you another one. Uh, not only are kids annoying, but people are annoying, and churches are made up of people right? And so sometimes you're in the church and you're like, oh, that person, why'd they do that? Here's my encouragement. Be patient with them. Be loving for them. Care for them. Because frankly, you're annoying too because you're a sinner, but also because God calls us to be. And we're dealing with other humans and the spirit is growing fruit in their life, but it might be growing at a different rate or it might be growing at a different type than yours is currently growing. So you might be good at patience, but you might be good, terrible at some other, or other things. Or you might be, you might be good at... at uh, at, at faithfulness, but you might be terrible at, at patience, and our fruits grow at different times. So we need to display patience towards each other so we can care for other people in the body, right? And so one of the things I always mention with, um, I try and mention it with, with staff, I try and mention it with others. I want to be a grace-based congregation based in this idea that we all screw up, that we all mess up, that none of us are, are perfect, and so that, that if you do mess up, I don't want someone coming to go, I messed up, I'm terrible. No, it's, no. You messed up, but it's okay. God loves you, and he cares for you, and he's working in you. So I don't want to be a place that responds with, with short, nostriled anger, right? But I want to be patient with people and go, listen, you're growing, and God's working in you, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to love on you. And so we should be patient with one another. We should be kind to one another. It goes with the love, joy, and peace, right? Kindness. We don't live in a kind time. Again, go to Twitter or Facebook or any sort of debate about literally anything. We don't live in a kind time. Goodness, it's the character of God. Faithfulness, gentleness. And I want to talk about this, this last one just quickly. It's self-control, right? And here's what I want to point to. It starts with love, joy, peace, patience. It starts, and it ends with self-control. I think self-control is there is because without self-control, what tends to happen in the life of humans is that there is no space for the work of the Spirit, right? So let's say, uh, 
I'd say it like this. Without self-control, the work of the Spirit becomes like a new couch in the home of a hoarder, right? He's hoarded everything. There's no place for the couch to go. There's no place for the fruit to grow without self-control. And what I, what I mean is this, is that God does not give to us self-control for uh, things. God doesn't give to us self-control because God is in the business of going, oh, I see those people. And they were going to have fun and they were going to do something fun, but I'm going to take it away. I'm just going to take it. So can, I'm going to make them. But rather, God gives to us self-control to make room for him and make room for he, who he is. And because he is so much greater and he's so much better, we need self-control. So uh, we're sneakerheads in, in my family. I, took, uh, I take the boys regularly, and we, we have a little run we do to look at uh, shoes. We like, we like shoes, and so we go to the Burlingtons. We go to a couple other stores, and we're always looking for, for, for cheap shoes because uh, I, really like shoe, I, I really like shoes. I really hate full price, right? So I want shoes, but I'm not paying full price. I'm trying to teach this to my boys. And um, I remember once last year, we were out and Jeremiah wanted a new pair of cleats and he was going to buy them with his, with his own money. And he found the cleats that he wanted. It was like that, that moment where like the music played and the light shone. He's like, I want these cleats. And I looked at the price. I'm like, you're spending your own money here. That's pretty expensive. Why don't you wait? Why don't you wait? And it was really difficult for him to wait. He's like, ugh. And um, his little brother, and they weren't even his cleats, but, but Noah's like, no, get them now. Get them now. Buy them now. And I'm like, they're not even yours. Why are you trying to spend his money? But Noah wanted something. If you ever need a bad angel to sit on your shoulder when you're trying to buy something, <laughs> Noah is an excellent, excellent choice. Buy it. Get it. Wasn't even his money. So I'm like, Jay, we, we're done shopping for now. Maybe we can come back later tonight, look at a few other places, right? So to his credit, he actually agreed uh, to that. And we, we went back uh, to a different store about five hours later and found the same cleats he was going to buy for like $40 less. It's a significant thing. And it was like one of those moments where he got it, like it connected. Oh, if I, if I take my time and I look and I exercise, just don't have to get the first thing I want, I can get these. And then I have more money for <laughs> other stuff, other shoes, all, all this kind of thing. And so that's a lesson I've been trying to teach. But I think it's a good analogy for how, how self-control works in the, in the life of, of the believer. So I don't think that the reason, the reason there's prohibitions, uh, that the reason we're told to be self-controlled means that we shouldn't go out like other people do and get drunk and party every week because God's trying to steal our fun, right? God didn't say, don't go get drunk and party and get that and get wild. I'm going to steal your fun. But rather, God gives to us self-control because he knows what he has for us is worth so much more than the party. And what happens is if you lack self-control, you start to sell to yourself cheap stuff and start to convince yourself that it can fill you up, but it never fills you in the way of the fruit of the Spirit and never in the way that Jesus will. So you're like, well, I got a party. It's a party. It's a party. It's a party till you wake up the next morning and feel like trash, right? Because I'm not a party. I'll be honest with you. I'm the, I'm the, the grandson of an alcoholic with four alcoholic uncles. We don't mess with, 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 with alcohol. But I, I know this. I know lots of people who have. I have lots of friends who've done lots of things they shouldn't. And what I've discovered is, is that the party's really, really fun early and really, really stinks. In fact, most, most people I've been around who drink too much are drinking for fun for the first couple of drinks. And they're drinking to, 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 to try and dampen their sorrow through the rest of, rest of the drinks. I've been... Uh, I had a friend who had, had a, uh, he called it a social drinking problem. It was a social binge drinking problem. But we had the stages, the stages of him with alcohol were, were funny, angry, sad, 
almost blacked out. Why? Because he was drinking for the party at first, but once he started to abuse, he's abusing, then he starts to feel horrible about himself, feels horrible about himself, so he's drinking to try and kill the pain. So why does God tell us to be self-controlled? Well, so that we don't go through the pain. And what I've realized is that a person who's trying to meet their needs and meet their joy through alcohol will never do it. So they just keep pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. They drink, 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 drink. But it never fills them in the way that they should. God told us to be self-controlled and stay away from that because we're not designed or made to fill our peace or fill our, our, our souls or fill who we're, who we're created to be with things like alcohol. We're made to fill it with him. And we're to be self-controlled so that it doesn't, we don't fill our house by hoarding a bunch of junk where there's no room for the Spirit to come into our, to our house. And so I was talking to the other place. It's a, it goes back to the issue with, with sexuality. The reason God said, this is how I've designed sexuality. One man, one woman, uh, beginning on their wedding night and lasting until the day that they die. I intend for them to be together sexually. I intend for them to be together joyfully. I intend for them to have much pleasure until the day they die, God gave it to us because he intended that pleasure for us and he told us to be self-controlled and only do it that way because he knew that other forms of sexuality destroy us. Right? We have broken sexualities all over every congregation in America. From pornography to broken identities to, 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 to all kinds of things. There's broken sexualities all over. And the reason God told us not to indulge in our broken sexualities, to control ourselves, to stay away from the lust, to stay away from the, is not because he's trying to steal our pleasure, but because he is the God and the creator of righteous pleasure, which he intended for us in our wife or in our husband to be forever as a way to glorify and worship him. God is not in the business of stealing pleasure. He wants to give it to you, and that's why he's demanding from you, self, or he's, he's asking from you or creating in you self-control. Be self-controlled. Stay away from things that steal from you the pleasure. It has to do with sexuality. It has to do with how you spend money, right? We want, we want, we want. I know all kinds of people who want really bad, and as soon as they buy, they want the next thing because it does not satisfy Broken sexualities don't satisfy. Overindulging sexualities outside of a marriage relationship do not satisfy. Alcohol and drugs do not satisfy. All of those become empty chases, and what they do is they crowd out room for the Spirit to grow and to create His fruit in you. God is not in the business of stealing your pleasure. He wants to give to you His pleasure, and it comes from the Spirit in you. Self-control is one of the greatest cultivators of our garden to allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow in us. So then, my challenge for you and us is we're going to, over the next, I think, four weeks, just talk about your inner life, talk about how we grow, talk about how we relate to each other as believers, those kinds of things, just kind of that kind of stuff. But my challenge for you this week is, are you cultivating a garden where the spirit of the living God can come and grow in you his fruit, his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you cultivating that garden? Are you, are you asking him to, to build that in you? Are you seeking him in his word? Are you seeking him in prayer? Are you doing those, those sorts of things? You cannot earn the fruit of the of the Spirit, but you should desire the fruit of the Spirit. And you can cultivate the garden so that the Spirit can come and plant the seed of His fruit in you and grow it. And the, the reality is this, the closer you grow to Jesus, the more the fruit is going to bloom and swell in you. May we be, may we be 
people who bear much fruit. Pray with me.